give me give me something, man. Yeah. Oh, it's it's so much pressure to have a talk show, and and um, you know, I think it's you know Bill Clinton playing the sax on your show. There's some great stuff to go back and look at. Uh, that that I'm just amazed. And then you go and and you are a student of the the ratings. You were delivering the fucking goods for a syndicated late night show to be pulling those kind of ratings. And yet the perception was, is that you weren't doing enough. And I bet you that drove you crazy. You were oh, like, yeah. What do I have and, to do? And, and they wanted me to, demographically speaking, they would tell me to be a little more conservative because when Johnny leaves, you want to inherit that audience. Mm-hmm. And so there was always a fight about, you know, like I remember the first time uh, Ice Cube came to visit me and he wanted to bring me a cassette and it was a cassette of fuck the police. And that was the first time, you right. know, now we yeah. look back, it's kind of funny. But, uh, <laughs> so I went to Paramount. I'm like, uh, we want to debut fuck the police, uh, with, uh, NWA. And they were like, you can't even yeah. introduce them. You can't even say their name, you know? Right. And, and they wanted me to be, they fought me on who I actually became. You know, I, my thing was Johnny is doing Steve and Edie, but there's an audience in America that doesn't have a talk show. Let me be that guy. And it wasn't just, you know, black people. It was like, you know, somebody to do David Bowie, somebody to do a lot of acts that there was a lot of stuff that Johnny and Oprah and the legends didn't like, you know, Oprah just started liking rap this month, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. No, you, I, I, one of the great shows I went back and watched, I've seen it several times. Chuck D and Flavor Flav came on and Chuck yeah. D's a really bright guy. He's another guy from Roosevelt. And he yeah. he was sitting and talking about some real stuff on your show. So I could imagine the affiliates. The next day they get a hold of you and go, "Hey, what the fuck are you doing with Chuck D from uh, you, you know from Public Enemy? What the hell are you up yeah. to?" So you're getting I it from a, all sides. Oh yeah, you I got a call about Ice T because when, when he wanted to come on and do Cop Killer. First they didn't want it. Then my affiliates were a little upset because he he compared, you know, he said, I'm not really a cop killer. He was trying to explain the music. You know, he says, I'm trying to explain to you a point of view in the inner city, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't really kill people. (laughs) It's like a movie. When you go to the movie and somebody kills a cop, it's a movie. And we all understand that. But what is this? You got to confirm this for me. Would Ed Mm -hmm. McMahon, while he was working on The Tonight Show and you're doing your thing, he would call you and suggest this is what I've heard. He would call you privately and suggest guests for you because he knew they weren't Tonight Show guests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and I guess it was mostly black guests that he would suggest. Is that true? Is that was that his thing? Yeah he 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 never called me and mentioned Bill Burr. You know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was yeah. always. Uh, and and by the way, he would tell me about people because Ed, like like say for instance, if Ed would have somebody on Star Search, Johnny would say. You should tell Arsenio about Sinbad, you know, right. and or or <laughs> I remember the, the name I remember was Usher Raymond because they use both names. Right. And, they didn't uh, know sometimes, Usher. Yeah. And, and, and um, Ed would take me to dinner at Spago's and we would talk. And I think the thing that was most important to me is that Johnny didn't hate me. You know, right. he saw that we could peacefully coexist because he didn't want any parts of, you know, Q-tip. You know, yeah, but yeah, so maybe you took the pressure off him so he wouldn't have on Q-tip, but you would. And therefore, he didn't look bad, quote unquote. You know, the Johnny Carson thing with you and you're a really good stand up comedian. I'm going to talk about that for a minute, but you're a really good stand up comic. And let's face it, back in the day when you were coming up and you were working at stand up really hard and devoting your life to it, being on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was a big fucking deal. Johnny would not put you on. Um, and, and, and was that just a source of great pain to you? Because you had paid your dues. You were, you know, you were working out of a lot of clubs, uh, the same, you know, comic clubs that everyone else was. What was it with Johnny that he would not put you on? What do you think? What was the feedback you got? Well, back in those days, a guy named Jim McCauley would come to the comedy store, the improv, and they would watch you. And, um, he always said, I'm not a Carson guest. The, the irony is he thought I was a Letterman guest and I ended up doing my first stand up shot on Letterman, which right. was very cool back in the day. Cause that was the hip spot. But you know how comics are. You know, a lot of comics. We wanted one of those. 
We right. wanted to get the that Johnny from Johnny OK. Right. Yeah. Let him and let him invite it, uh, me to the chair. Yeah. Yes. And and Joan Rivers would put me on the Tonight Show on Mondays, but Johnny would never put me on. And of course, then Joan was kind of upset when I took over her show. But dude, I was hungry. You know, I was. Well, yeah. Let's talk about that relationship. Okay. I am a Joan Rivers lover, as you mm -hmm. are. Joan Rivers was very, very good to you. Oh, a phenomenal yeah. woman. You know, I loved her so much. I gave I gave the eulogy at her funeral, and and I I I just adored that woman. I don't do that kind of stuff, but for her, yeah. For you, I would think. You know, Johnny wouldn't have you on, but Joan, whenever she was the guest host, and somebody dropped out or something, like that, get Arsenio. Like yeah. she and, she and I and I end up getting that show because those people had seen me so many times. The people on. The Fox lot, I was a regular with Joan. And, uh, and and by the way, I didn't get on Johnny until it was time to promote Coming to America. So I actually right. got on, interviewed with him, and announced the following week that I was doing a talk show. And you know that was all by design because if I had said that I was doing a talk show, I wouldn't have gotten on to promote Coming to America, and I wouldn't have gotten on the kid from Cleveland who dreamed of this. Don't forget, I started as a magician in Cleveland. I wrote Johnny a letter when I was 11, and they told me I was wrong then. It's funny. He, my <laughs> whole life, he was telling me I was wrong. You know, I'm a little black magician from Cleveland, and he's like, no, nope, that's wrong. But I still have the letter. And um, when I finally met him during commercial, he did a coin trick for me. And back in those days, Johnny would have a cigarette hidden. He smoked a cigarette and then showed me another another trick and 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 we really got along and talked and that night was very special for me, dude. When I was a kid, I was the only brother in Cleveland who wanted a Johnny Carson suit. I had read in a magazine that there was a certain thing by Botany Five Hundred and it was a Johnny Carson fashion, and everybody else wanted to be Jim Brown in Cleveland. You know, everybody wanted to be one of the Temptations. I wanted a Johnny Carson suit, and my dad one September. When we went shopping for school clothes, he bought me a Johnny Carson suit that I would wear to church every Sunday. Yeah, and you know what's so weird, too, especially in America? You know, a, a, a young black kid fantasizing about being Johnny Carson. I am sure there were a ton of people who said to you, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know you can't be Johnny Carson. You can't, you yeah. can't, you can't, you can't. So when you got your own talk show, it had to be overwhelming. And, and to me, the other pressure you were on, like, you know... I, Famously, guys like Spike Lee are going, oh, Arsenio's an Uncle Tom, uh, mm -hmm. which is a powerfully painful thing to call somebody an Uncle Tom. You're oh, doing yeah. your thing. You're trying to negotiate these waters. You're trying to bring in a mass audience. What, what the fuck was that, really? I mean, what? Because why? Why, why, why go after you? Are you guys on good terms now, or, or is that some, a pain that you just, you know, you can't let go of? You know, back then we didn't have the word clickbait, but I think it was all about that. You know, it, it was a situation where a movie came out and I didn't book him quick enough. I mean, obviously it's the Arsenio Hall show. I'm going to get you, Spike. But I think I didn't react quick enough or, you know, you, gosh, it's been 30 years. I, I think he didn't get on when he wanted to. So mm -hmm. he called me out in that way. And but I was I was getting around to him. It was to my advantage to put Spike Lee on. He's a great director who was very important right. to, to, to black Hollywood and film. So I was gonna get to it, but I think he just he kind of snapped too quick. Yeah, and I think people don't realize when you have a talk show, it's not like you're sitting there and booking the show every night and trying to figure out a schedule. You only have so you know, it, it, it is a bit of a science, or at least you think it is. And so you can't please everyone. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a hurtful attack in that, you know, you're like, oh, fuck. So now I'm, so am I oh. too white? Am I too black? I mean, I, oh, and, and, came and that was always a problem, Howard. The paramount is you're too black. When Johnny leaves, the audience is not going to come your way. And <laughs> of course, Ebony Magazine or whoever, you're, you're too white. You're too, it was really hard. And as much as I walked out with a smile and did the show every night, I was tortured, man. It, it was always some shit. Like, like me and Ice Cube are cool now. But when Paramount would let me put NWA on, he wrote a song and put, you know, right. when a rapper puts your name 
Oh. When he spit your name in some bars, it's like, oh, fuck. And I didn't even know my name rhymed with anything. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I turn on the radio. And it's like, everybody asks me how I like Arsenio about as much as I like the Bicentennial. And I'm like, oh, fuck. First of all, he rhymed my name with something. I thought Arsenio and Orange had nothing you could rhyme with. <laughs> That's you know, right. But, oh, he, 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 he chewed me up. And we, you know what? Now that he's famous and he's in charge of making movies and being a producer, we've talked. And he says, I get it, dude. I thought it was you. I, hey, I was, I was going to get to everybody, but it right. took some time. I had to slip Dolly Parton in between a couple black of course. acts. You know, I, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, what, but, but, but is that really the reason why you gave it all up? Because was the pressure just becoming so much? You had six years on the air. You were doing great. Admittedly, it was weird because you had to do a syndicated show and you had all these CBS stations. And then Letterman, the CBS had nothing in late night. When they, when they got Letterman, suddenly you lose a bunch of your stations. Oh, and it's yeah. a, so you have that going on. You got, you got, you got guys calling you Uncle Tom. You got some people uh, saying you're too black. And do you just say, fuck it, just fuck it. I can't take it anymore. Did the pressure get to you? Uh, I couldn't afford to say, fuck it, because there's that point where you tell your mom she can quit her job and then <laughs> you can't <laughs> you say fuck it no more. Yeah, right, yeah, right. You, got, yeah, you, got, yeah. you got to do it. So at a certain point, um, at about five years, when you see numbers erode a little bit, I right. think my thing was. I love acting and I have to do this every day. I have to watch somebody's movie every night. I have to read somebody's book every evening. So there was a point where I want to act more. But as I saw ratings erode, I was like, I think six years. Here was my thing. I was on the Paramount lot and Cheers was there. And I always would look at how long big shows lasted. And I'm like, six years, that's a good run. That's a good run. So I right. wrote a letter to this dude, Kerry McCluggage, and said, I'm going to move on. And uh, uh, my whole life changed. I didn't do a lot of acting. I ended up becoming a father and uh, trying to get back in the business later on. Right. And it, it, it's, it's rough, you know, because the business don't wait for you. You can't take no. a break from show business. In retrospect, should you have stayed with the show, do you think? Would that uh, have satisfied something? You know, maybe at the time you don't realize how great it is that you had that show because you're in the midst of a, like a beehive with bees stinging you the whole time. I, I would imagine you finally just said, Oh, I should have stuck with that thing. Was that a great regret? Yeah, because you know, maybe, maybe you stick with where people are comfortable having you. I mean, the world kind of chooses who you are. You don't always get to choose. You don't get to say, Oh, I want to do more acting. Uh, right. You're fortunate to have a vehicle. And, um, you know, if I want a house the size of yours, I probably should have stuck around a little longer. Right. Well, well, you know, you know, the it's one true. Thing and Arsenio is that there's nothing ever came to fill that void. Yep. Nothing and, you followed know, you. And Arsenio, after coming to America, you would think, you know, because you were so good in it and the, the movie was such a hit, you would think there would be more acting work anytime you wanted it because you have that credential, but it's weird how like that can kind of just go away. You know, the other, the other hey, moment. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Eddie actually made a point about that. He said the other day he was on the phone or on a zoom call with Oprah and he was explaining to Oprah, you know, the Saul character takes four hours of makeup, four and a half hours. And she said, the Saul character. he says the Jewish guy in the barbershop, and she said, this is Oprah, dog. She said, oh, that's you? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and I've had Jesse Jackson say to me, I'm going to watch the movie one more time because I didn't know you all were the barbers. I thought you would give an opportunity to older black men. And, <laughs> and, and we've had that many times. So he thinks it's kind of a thankless job when you do something like coming to America because people – Give a lot of accolades to the people who do the makeup. They don't even know you're under there, you know. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> don't get a lot of credit for it. It's so great. I mean, you know, the other thing I was going to tell you, uh, while we're still on the old talk show, because there's so mm -hmm. many great things I want people to go back and look at. To me, one of the most touching shows that you had on was Sammy Davis Jr. came on, Ooh. and you gave him 
you really gave him his due, you know, and it was, I think it was liberate. I think Sammy was sitting there. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but Sammy was sitting there going, I cannot believe I'm on a late night talk show hosted by a black man. I think he really appreciated you, appreciated the moment. He wanted to please you. And, and at one point he even kind of said to you, I'm so sick of, of like people defining my blackness. I chose to be black. He said something like, I chose to be black the way I am. He was saying people were calling me an Uncle Tom and calling me out. And he says, and you know what? We all approach life in a different way. And he was he was so open about it and explaining it to you. And in a way, I think it really touched you. I really, truly do. Uh, because you were going through it. Was it. A, yeah. it was amazing, Howard, because first of all, you don't know how that day's going to work out. I've been to Sammy's house. Eddie and I used to go to Sammy's house. He'd show us his gun collection. He had, <laughs> but, but it, but it wasn't like a, like, like a gun collection that I have to, you know, it, yeah. it was like classic old Colt 45s. And here's a 3030 Winchester that the cavalry used to use. And he showed us all these guns and, and he, he was an amazing guy. He was the first person I knew that had a theater and we went to watch uh, a movie at his house. It was Cocoon. Where the right. guy, the old guys get young again, yeah, and yeah. Um, so, but but he always told me he would when I would see him someplace he'd say, "I'm a Carson guest," and you know I got what that meant. Guys like Alan King and Sammy Davis, they would give me my due and and speak to me in public, but they would always say, you know, I'm a Carson guest or something like that. So I I arrive. He he agrees to do the show. I arrive at the lot. And I say, I want to go over and say hello to Sammy. And usually I don't like to go over because you want to keep first blurt from guests. You don't right. want, you want to keep it fresh and you don't want to see them. But I had to go say thank you. I go over there and you're expecting, like usually you approach somebody's door and there's a lot of hanger-ons and entourage outside that door. There was no one. It hmm. was Sammy with a stocking cap on and he was doing his own makeup. And he's he's sitting and he sees me in the mirror and he turns around and we have this great conversation where he says all the things that I needed to hear from him, how he's watched the show and he supports me. He even told me these great stories about how things have changed. No matter how hard it is on you, things have changed. He told me about people peeing in his drink, uh, right. people trying to grab him and paint him. He told me about one time he went for a swim at a Vegas club that he was working and a, a patron requested that they take the water out of the pool and put more water in it because the black man had gotten in the pool. It was Sammy though, you know? Yeah. And he told me great stories, but then he said, I apologize for not being here, man. I should have been here sooner. Um, and he says, and I guess at that point he was starting to have problems with his throat and he was having some medical problems. And, uh, and he said, but I can't sing. You know, I can't sing, uh, but but I'll do two segments, whatever you want. We can talk about anything. And Howard, here was the moment on the couch. He looks over at the band. Right. And he says, can you do time after time in D? <laughs> and my band was of the age where when they hear time after time, they think Cindy Lauper. Right. So they start playing this song and he's walking over and he says, no, 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 <laughs> you know, and it was an older, different time. And so he starts time after time. I tell myself that I, and then they, they get into it with him. So afterwards I say, oh, I really appreciate what you did. You, you spontaneously got up and did that song. And, and he says, you know, I should have done a rehearsal and agreed to do a song. He says, I can and I love this. He says, I can't give you less than I give Johnny. I can't give your audience less than I give Johnny. I got to give you 100%. And I'm not at my best right now, but I gave it to you. I dig you, man. You know, and I'll always, he said something like, I'll always be here for you. And he that said was, to you, he said uh, to you at the end of the interview, whenever you call on me, I'll be here for you. And he, and he said, I'll come back and do a bunch of songs and I want to mix our two bands together. He was yeah. really taken with you, and he was on your team. And the guy, from you talk about people in entertainment, he's probably the most talented guy that ever lived. He was a drummer. He was a musician. He could sing. He could dance. I mean, he yeah. he, he could act. He was, uh, he was a monster, but he put up with he so was, much shit. He was shit. The, uh, the original Wayne Brady. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's so true, though. But, I mean, you go back now and look at those moments, and it was some show. And, you know, I mean, were you were you competitive with the other guys? What was it like fighting over bookings with these guys? Whenever I talk to people about bookings, that's where the, 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 the all the late-night people conflict. And, you know, you bring up, like, Johnny Carson's guest. You don't want to fuck with Johnny, but... Some of the best moments on Letterman, I've said this to Dave, I love to go back. He had on Liberace. Now, Liberace was a Johnny Carson guy. But seeing Letterman with Liberace was fucking great. And it was just fresh. And it was the same with you, with Sammy, because it was different. He wasn't doing just Johnny. He was talking to a young guy who was on, you know, who was... Who, who wasn't his contemporary. It worked. Yeah, I, I, used to, I used to love that kind of stuff. Like, like I mentioned Dolly Parton earlier. Um, when I first mentioned her name, my staff thought I was crazy. But I'm like, f- first of all, I want to be a show that everybody watches. Secondly, right. everybody goes crazy over the Whitney Houston song. And uh, everybody loves that song. Dolly wrote that song. Right. And I was like, for my audience, bring Dolly on and let her do that song. And she, and uh, we'll always, and she did her version. And I right. thought that was great music history. Also, she was so nervous. She walked out and sat in my chair because, <laughs> yeah. you know, she, it was, and, and, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to say the couch, the chair, but she was that nervous. She sat in my chair, which made it <laughs> more interesting because I didn't make her get up. I sat on the couch. I know. I love that stuff. I, to me, one of my favorite moments on, on Letterman was a similar story. I, I watched this all the time. Desi Arnaz. You know, oh, Ricky God. Ricardo was on Letterman and it was, yeah. it fucking worked. And he starts yeah. doing Cuban Pete and all this stuff. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really true. So you don't want to get, you know, sort of, uh, uh, stereotyped into one kind of guest. It ruins the show. So what would happen? Was that the beef between you and Leno? Was it over bookings? I know you guys had a, a falling out. I had a falling out with Jay probably over a completely different thing. Uh, but 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 what was your what what is that relationship like now and what happened back then? Wow. Um, I remember being the fault in that conflict because I think they asked me. There was a magazine when he first took over. There was a magazine that asked me about the competition with Letterman and and Jay. And with Jay, I said, well, I know Jay very well. And it's like the Lakers and the Clippers. Uh, the Clippers lose, but they don't come to lose. <laughs> they try <Right>. to win. <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to try to kick his ass. <laughs> right. And, of okay. course, they, they put a cover out to say, I'm going to kick his ass. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> Was that it? <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. as far as the booking and stuff, you know, you look back. And there were times when, when I was angry, but you got to earn bookings, you know? Right. And if you, if you get the, cause I remember one time Stallone came to my show and when my numbers were right and I could give him the audience that he needed, nobody has to argue. So That's right. the bottom line is, is execute and there will be no booking wars. But weren't there, there times, and this is what drives me crazy about late night, because it is so important what guests you have on that night that drives the ratings. Aren't there times where someone will say, hey, you got to do my show first and don't do Arsenio and don't do Dave or something like that. Oh, yeah. and, and that's yeah. the bullshit, right? I mean, that makes you crazy. You never oh, yeah, pulled I, that. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't in the power. That's a power move. And I wasn't in that position. You know, right. I was kind of lucky to be out of Cleveland, dog, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was, uh, it wasn't my, I, I wasn't able to do that. Now, when I came back and did the reboot for a year at CBS, the same shit goes on. I had an R&B group call me and they said, look, I know we're supposed to do that first Friday night, but, um, we got a call and it was a daytime host. We got a call and we, we got to do them first and then we can do you two weeks after that. And I realized <laughs> this shit is still going on. I um, mean, you know what? And it now is, it's harder because there's more, there's more hosts. There's like nine Jimmy's every there, there's and, and in the right. daytime there's Kelly's and Ellen's. And so it's really crazy now. And you know what, Arsenio, it's so true. And I say this all the time. I go, give me the guest last. Fuck it. <laughs> I'm good enough that I'll have a great show. 
You guys go interview them all you want. You let Arsenio go on every fucking show and then come on my show and I guarantee it'll be better. I mean, there, it shows a lack of confidence on people's parts that they have to sort of control that whole thing. You better do my show first. Fuck that. Yeah. If you're good, how, how, who cares? I, I felt that way. That might, that might be a bit of arrogance, but I always felt it was just, I was this individual and I felt, you know, like you can take the body of a car, you can put a Ferrari engine in it, or you could put, I, I remember one time Jay put a helicopter engine in a truck and it ran totally different you know we're like engines if you put me in a body it's gonna run different than if you put howard in it and i really believe that i always believe that give me michael jackson or give me whoever give me bill clinton i had bill clinton wear my tie i had bill clinton wear my sunglasses i found out he played saxophone i had him practice two songs i wrote jokes about Bill Clinton, had him behind me in the posse. You know, I'm going to do different things. Letterman, you know, he's going to do, you know, Letterman may have Sanborn in with Paul Schaefer. I'm going to have Q-Tip in with the posse. You know, my car is going to run different because I'm a different engine. Yes. And I think you get to people and you get to their insecurities when they start this shit. Don't go on his show. Don't go on his show. And that's where I think the rivalries. So you're okay with Leno. If you saw Leno tonight uh, at dinner, although we can't go to dinner anywhere, but if you saw him, you'd be like, oh, hey, Jay, how you doing? And and, and there wouldn't be bad blood. Absolutely. We we were cool before I said that. And, uh, you know, I was being a little too competitive. (laughs) Right. Uh, and and not understanding that they're going to take that one line and put on the cover of the damn magazine. Uh, right. But we were friends before that. We always play video games. He taught me to ride a motorcycle, um, by, w- which is a sight, because when a guy is on the back of a motorcycle with another guy, there's no way not to look effeminate. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> right. You, you, can't hold, you can't hold on to Jay, so you have to put your hands behind you. <laughs> and kind of ride like that, you know. Yeah. So he taught me to ride a motorcycle. And right before the pandemic, we were working together down at a place called the Comedy and Magic Club. So we're we're real cool. And you know how it is. You you get over this shit much quicker. I I wish you and I could have met before today. Yeah, me too. Again. Me too. Yeah, I know. And you know, I do really just appreciate you so much and your your your, your first of all, your stand-up specials, which I want to get to in a minute because you you said some great shit in your stand-up specials i particularly love the bit on oj where you meet oj in a bathroom and you're like juice you know and you go shit i never said juice in my life you know these are there's there's some some great comedy there and and i don't know i mean and 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 yeah going back and looking at the shows and i go you know why is it i keep going back to arsenio shows and watching those and learning from them um i don't know there's just some you know the way you handled magic johnson when he first you know announced he had hiv uh um, uh, I don't know. It, it, it was some. It was just some great moments. You know what I was watching the other night? You with Mariah Carey, her first TV, network TV appearance, or whatever you want to call oh, it, yeah. first appearance. And God, what a what a voice and what a beauty! Now, and, see, that and, was a prime example of just staying in your lane, and things will come. I was sitting in the Ivy. Um, there's two Ivies. I was sitting in the one on Robertson, right? And um, a friend of mine says. Yo, I mean, we were young, man. You know, a friend of mm-hmm. mine says, yo, look at that girl. She's fine as a motherfucker, you know? Yes. And and I grew up, I, I'm a music fanatic, you know that. Yeah. I grew up hearing that song, Tommy Matola. Right. Lives in a dream. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> whatever that so, is, whatever that line is. Yeah, yeah. So, so I look and I'm saying, I think that's Tommy Matola with her. And um, so he sees us looking, you know, Finally, he comes over back in the day when you'd give somebody your card and he gave me his card and I'm, oh, shit, Tommy Vitola. Yo, dude, I, they used to say your name in the hood in a song, man. And so (laughs) we talked and it was good to meet him. And, um, and so we were talking and he says, the young lady with me is a singer. And, and I'm like, is that your girl? And he says, no, no, it's, it's a client. I'm like, yeah, okay. You, you know, I joked with him about, I said, you, if you had a soap opera, bro, it would be the young and the breastless. Cause I know, I know <laughs> yeah. there's something going on with that girl, but she was beautiful and beautiful. Oh, oh man, she was adorable. And, and he says, listen to this tape. He gave me a cassette tape. That's how long ago it was. And on the tape, it said vision of love. And I went, to my car when I left and listened to it immediately and called him the next day. And I'm like, um, 
she's not going on Johnny. And, she, and, and he said, no, Johnny won't break her. She'll get on Johnny once you make her famous for me. Right. And, right. And so I knew my place and I put her on immediately. Cause I was like, in case they change their mind, and Ed McMahon gets in this and says, we're keeping this one, you know, right. but, uh, <laughs> but, but doesn't it piss you off? Doesn't it piss you off that, Hey, you're the guy who breaks Mariah Carey. I mean, you really were, you were way ahead of it. And then when she gets big, all of a sudden now she does Johnny in a way it does make you bitter too. You're like, fuck, I, I, I gave her her break. She should be yeah. here tonight. You know that I should be recognized for that. It's so gosh darn frustrating, right? Yeah, it was, it was hard, especially like when I did the reboot, and there were so many people that I put on TV for the first time or I was their bread and butter and they wouldn't answer the phone, man. Mm. So, uh, I, I just we realized, make a list. Hey, Arsenio, let's make a list of those people and, uh, and, and really get on their case. I mean, come <laughs> on. I mean, we, they, they, they're, they're, they are heels. They are not good people. <laughs> it's just so fucked up. What do you mean you won't take my call? Oh my God. It, it, it is just so crazy. You know, but I, I understand, has, I understand it's business and I try to, I try not to, because I see some of those people and they, they hug me and I'm like, yo, man, I got canceled because of your ass, you know? But, you know, it's business and I, I get it. I try to. And, and, and right now I'm keeping it business while I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, by the way, keeping it business. It's like when you have a talk show and, and you're powerful because you have that. You know, we didn't have social media. I mean, you're one of the guys. You're the gatekeeper. I, I was Twitter for the black. Right. I was black Twitter. I was you, I wasn't a bluebird. I was a blackbird. And when Tupac had a problem, he came to me and talked about it, you know, and that was that was the tweet. Yes. And that power is intoxicating. And even when you meet a Mariah Carey and stuff like that, how do you, I mean, being a single man and everything and all these beautiful women, I mean, actresses and things coming on. How do you keep that? Like, I, I mean, it must have been insane in terms of people coming on to you, but literally women like, like when you were in Cleveland, you, you know, you didn't meet women like <laughs> yeah. that. And it, yeah. it must have been intoxicating. No. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. we had we, we had a lot of fun, Howard. Yeah, um, I bet. I, I bet. I just I just found out that way back in the day when you were between marriages, we dated. A girl. <laughs> woman? Oh, we did. Yeah, me and Howard, and I know <laughs> Howard knows who she is. I don't. I, I don't. I, well, let's talk uh, about that. Uh, uh, off uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that during the commercial. But yes, Arsenio, man, I had a it crazy, was a good time. Arsenio, I had a crazy year. There was one year between my 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 wife, who I'm with now, and and I was divorced. It was a crazy year. I'm sure. Who knows what we were doing? Maybe we were in the same he, room together. Probably, we didn't even know. Yeah. Hey, uh, Follow that, that immediately. <laughs> crazy year um every year was like that for me man it, it was wild and, and my woman's in the other room and i know she can hear me so i'm gonna go light on this subject but, <laughs> right. uh, but i i lost my mind for a minute howard i was i know well i was me too crazy yeah, i me too because it is intoxicating because when you're a kid growing up and, and let's face it we're men it's it's like just mind blowing that anybody wants you, you know, and you and you feel, yeah. you know, you get tricked by that shit, too, because you feel like, oh, my God, somebody likes me. Somebody's uh, desirous of me. So I wanted my whole life. I, you know, and grow, I'm it, growing I grew up in Cleveland. I mean, I'm exactly as you just described. And then you come to this town. And a girl says, I'm coming over and I'm bringing my friend. Mm hmm. And when that when that kind of stuff first goes down, you're like, oh yes, yes, your and, friend, yeah. And, yeah, and now just... we're in my new condo, and these girls are snorting blow off each other's stomach, and I'm like, yes, yes, you know, oh yeah, I've arrived. It's unbelievable, and you know. Keeping your head on straight through all of that is not easy and, and you can lose yourself. And, and you know, it, it's so funny. You talk about growing up in Cleveland and I'm sure it's not unlike Roosevelt and, and, and maybe we're the same in this respect. You know, my, my father, while my parents are still married and, and still alive remarkably, mm -hmm. but, but, <laughs> but you, yeah, but, but, the, but my father was very difficult with me. And I think to, to have a man's love or a, a, a father figure, uh, who who seemed like he was happy about me would have meant the world to me, and and for you it's more extreme. You're six years old and your parents divorce, and you know it, it, I imagine and your and your father's a, a preacher, 
a, a religious yeah, my father was man, a Baptist preacher, yeah, a Baptist preacher. And, uh, you know, it, when your father leaves, I don't know if you stayed in your life or how, how that relationship went, but I bet it left a, a big hole in your heart. And so when you get to Hollywood and someone wants you, it's like, it's part of that. It's that father hunger too, you know? Yeah. I, I think my therapist has gotten to that a couple times. And, uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, I came home one day from school and all the shit was on the sidewalk and my mother was, <laughs> we're going to grandma's. <laughs> Yeah. Mm, so we went, Oh yeah, man, you never forget it. Uh, so we went around the corner. Grandma lived around the corner and I stayed with her and we, we lived with my grandma for a long time while my mom went back to school and got her life together and was able to get a, a good job after that. And, uh, so I'm two blocks away from dad and I would just walk and visit my dad. Um, but you're right, man. There's so many days when I wish I could, Ask him one more question or hug him. You know, I don't, I don't remember, like, like I remember, uh, I remember my youth, there wasn't a lot of I love you and hugging and, and I, I see, like I've seen magic kiss his kids. You know, my dad never kissed me and, and, you know, I mean, I turned out all right and everything, but I think when you come to this town, there's a little bit of something inside you, that needy side of you, that makes right. you react certain ways to love and to being appreciated. Are you one of those guys that it's hard for you to be alone? Like, I mean, in, in bed at night, do you always need someone there with you? Because in a way, you're still that lonely kid. And maybe you just you need somebody there with you. It's difficult to, to not share your life with someone. And maybe that's even... Wanting to grab every woman too, you know, when you're younger, because you just fucking want someone to show you that they care, you know, just, Hey, it, 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 it really goes back to your father more than, than anything else. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I was, I was an only child, you know, I wasn't the star football player, you know, I was a geek. I was the kid who did magic tricks. No one came close to wanting to give me no pussy at any time. You know? <laughs> right. Magic does not so, equal pussy. Right. It's yeah, so true. Yeah. But you know, our city of so many, magnet, huh? so many really good comics, so many really good comics start out with magic. And my theory is you don't have an act yet, but at least you can get up with magic. Like Steve Martin wrote a great book about this. I don't know if you've read it, mm -hmm. but he, you, did you read that book? I mean, yes. Steve started Steve. out magic. So you get up and you do magic and then you throw in a joke or two. And right. uh, it gives you an excuse for being on stage. So, so yeah. in a way, magic works. Johnny too. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny, Steve, uh, Dick Cavett. Right. There've been a few like that. And, um, you know, when, when you're, when you're a magician, I remember I would do dove magic and I would do it to music. And then <laughs> there was a portion of my act where the music would stop and I wouldn't do the dove stuff. I would bring someone up from the audience do a card trick, a couple things, and and I would talk to them. And I remember a guy at a magic convention. You never forget these kind of moments in your life. His guy, his this guy's name was Hank Morehouse. He had a the tag at the convention, Ypsilanti, Michigan. Hank Morehouse, and he told me, he says, "Young man, I was just a kid." He said, "Young man, you're a good magician, but you'll become famous when you put the birds away and just talk." Mm. And because I was just this kid, like. Who and, and it was exactly what you said. Instead of I would tell somebody, okay, uh, say the magic word, and they'd say abracadabra. I'd say, no, I'm a black magician. Say ham hocks or some shit like that. You know, and right. I was just a kid writing You're these making jokes. jokes. Yeah. Oh, and and so he recognized that, and uh, it's exactly what you said. One day you get rid of the birds, and the magic was just window dressing for my act. Yeah, because I love that whole relationship you have with Eddie Murphy. You bust him and go, uh, hey, weren't you a ventriloquist? And Eddie gets Absolutely. very upset. He gets really upset by that. You know how to hey, just hey, tweak him. And let me tell you something about the ventriloquism. He still does it. If you <laughs> if you get Eddie in the right place right, and it's a bunch of people around, Eddie has a – I think I can tell this. Eddie has a Paul Mooney ventriloquism doll. Oh, so really yeah so howard <laughs> so funny there is nothing like smoking a joint right and eddie pulls out the, the paul mooney doll and it has a bandana just like paul looks just like paul and <laughs> and he he'll do the put material? his hand in the doll oh man yeah. and you just sit there 
and talk to the Paul Moore. And it's like, oh, nigga, what are you smoking? I don't know what they call this. And he says, oh, oh, please, nigga. I want to know what that is. I, 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 I not only want the name, but I want the recipe, nigga. And <laughs> that sounds you know, like the greatest. That, 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 that's the thing. That, that sounds like the greatest routine that's never been seen except by you and a few people. It must be amazing. And why Paul Mooney? Because, I mean, it's a funny voice on Paul. But but is it, it, it does Eddie respect Paul or is he oh, goofy? He loves Paul. He he loves right. Paul. I'll tell you what it is, Howard. He has a couple dolls, but the other ones aren't of famous people. Right. Right. You That's know, like, his Paul Mooney routine. Does he does he move his lips when he does it, or is he uh is he actually a good ventriloquist? He's a horrible ventriloquist. He's, he's, <laughs> right. he's yeah, you know. He's the you know, it would be like it would be like me doing a trick and a dead bird falls out of my jacket. You know? That's the level. Of his but he but he's such he has such a great ear and he does these voices i mean you start to look at the paul mooney doll and you forget it's eddie talking you don't even look at his lips it's so compelling <laughs> you know i give, that, you know. I'd give anything to, to be there and watch him do that because i'm a paul mooney fan i've had paul on the show and i i just think he's one of the funniest guys and that voice is so distinctive to see eddie doing that would just be too Fucking! You must be pissing your pants when it goes down. I oh, can absolutely. only imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and Paul Mooney, I, I hear he's under the weather. Yeah, uh, I want to say hi to that. him and get well, Paul. You've done so much for the business that we're in. Yeah, no, and and and, and people don't know he was he was Richard Pryor's writer. He was one of his writers. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. When I was when I was a young man, I'd look at the back of Richard Pryor albums, and I remember there was a joke Richard said: When you go to jail, um, you get justice. Just us. And, uh, <laughs> and that joke, you look at the back of the album and it credits Paul Mooney. I, I remember when I met him, I'm like, you're Paul Mooney. You wrote justice. You know, it was like, right. like meeting a great songwriter or something, you know, and, and he's a great joke writer, you know, do you still practice magic? Like when you say, listen, this is a skill I had, I'll, I, you know, I gotta, I don't want to lose it completely. Cause that's kind of a cool thing to be able to do. I'm jealous of that. Do you actually, are you still pretty good at it? The sleight of hand, the things? I can still do stuff, but I'll tell you when it came in handy. When you become a dad, that's when right. you start doing it again. There is nothing cooler than a dad who can do magic for your son and his friends. Oh, that's so great. I so desperately wanted my children to love me that I would do magic, but I don't know how to do it. So I would say, look at this napkin. And then I'd say, turn your head. And then i throw the napkin away and go, look, it's gone. I mean, it was really bad. No slide ahead. But they thought I was a genius. It was, it was good. So I could only imagine knowing magic. So when you're growing up, I mean, I don't know where you find it. All of us, I suppose, who have who went into a, a, a field and, and succeeded, you know, finding that inner strength to keep going on. Because when you're a kid from Cleveland and then, you know, you go to Detroit and Chicago and you're trying to work out comedy and comedy clubs, there's so many moments where you probably say, what the fuck am I doing? All my friends are now, you know, making some money or they're doing something. Hey, and I'm the first time yeah. I came to New York, Howard, I went to the Catskills. And imagine that experience. You're a black guy from Cleveland. Like, this is how naive I was. I'm this only child from the ghetto of Cleveland. I go to the Catskills. I'm at the Raleigh Hotel. I call room service and I say, could I get some bacon and some orange juice? I didn't know you don't order bacon at the Raleigh <laughs> Hotel in the Catskills. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had that's a no idea. Oh, <laughs> bacon was my God. And, yeah. uh, uh, I, but, but, but those rooms were so important because you die a lot in those rooms and you, but you learn to work them. You learn to work a dinner room while people are eating. You learn to work a crowd that's not a young black crowd. That was right. important to me to go on the road with different kinds of people. Everybody from Tom Jones to Johnny Guitar Watson. So you can say, I make anybody laugh if you put them in front of me. That was important to me. Yeah, I mean, it must be intimidating. You go up to the Borscht Belt and there's a bunch of old Jews there and you walk in and you're trying to relate. I bet you the first hundred times you went on, you fucking tanked because you got to figure out what, yeah, you got to figure out. I mean, and it takes a bravery that people, you know, to stand there and not get a laugh. It, it's just as important as getting a laugh, right? I mean, just. And, and, and the older comics, I, I, you know, comics, I know there are comics that have battles and feuds, but I remember guys like Dick Capri and Shecky Green and Freddie Roman. If you were a New York comic, you knew those men. And those guys would help me and teach me. Wow. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a good side of the comedy clique. You know, th those guys helped me a lot.
instead of laughing at me or thinking I was an asshole for being there, you know. Did your father, was your father supportive at all? Or was he like, why don't you become a preacher or just do something like I, uh, he must have been like, maybe he was the voice in your brain going, get the fuck out of here. What are you yeah. doing? What, what was, was it bad? Yeah. He, well, first of all, he wanted me to be a preacher. Right. Um, and when you say I'm going to Hollywood, I remember we were watching Soul Train once and Chaka Khan was on. And, um, and he says, so you want to go to Hollywood? That, and he's pointing to Chaka Khan because, like, she had on booty shorts and boots. I think that's all she had. On, you know? Great. And, and he was worried about me coming out here and and drugs and stuff like that. But mostly, he wanted me to be a preacher. And you can imagine when I got to do the preacher and coming to America, I wished my dad was here. You know, because was I was that an I impression of your of father. Him. Is that an impression like, of your father? A, a little bit. A little bit is him. And a little bit is this preacher in Chicago that I saw. And this guy, he would take one word and do a whole sermon. As a matter of fact, I stole the whole sermon because he would do, he would say, <laughs> today my sermon is on the word joy. And for an hour, he'd talk about joy. And he'd get to the end and say, I got joy in my leg. I got joy in my soul. I got joy. And he would, and he would, and he would go off. And I actually used the word joy. And and he would put songs, you know, <laughs> if, if loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. And that kind of stuff. And my dad would do that because he would try to reach the kids and 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 be aware of pop culture so he could say something in this sermon that would get them, you know. Yeah. And there's a certain cadence with those preachers that it's that breathing thing. It's like you do it. I, you do it naturally. I, I can't do it. And everybody in my... Everybody in my family is a preacher. So like, like I have ladies, my aunt is a preacher. My uncle, I have uncles and they all, it's the family, it's the family business. business. Howard. Yeah. yeah yes, right. yes. And, and I, I have an uncle who his, his hook is he'll, he'll do this thing. The Lord came down ah, and walked on the, ah, and he put that in the middle of everything and said, down the road. I said, Lord, Lord, <laughs> you know, and I don't know what the thing is, but he does it. And, and did you ever cool. sit down? Did you ever sit down with him and go, what the fuck is the ah thing? It's, right. the, it's, just, yeah. it's, it's the music. Yeah, yeah my, my dad would do this thing where he'd say, uh, uh, Moses came down the mountain. <laughs> he just... And I was like, that's some Al Green shit you're doing right there. Yeah, but yeah, he yeah. would do things like that that would blow me away. And and and, and the ladies, uh, my dad, the ladies would go crazy in the church. You know, Reverend Hall, they <laughs> preaching. You can you can get laid if you want to as a preacher. But was it but was it a scandal for a religious man to then divorce your mother? It must have somehow resonated through his his community, right? Because I mean, oh, yeah. oh my God, you know, he's a hypocrite. He's talking about love and joy and family and blah blah blah. And now he's this divorced guy. Do you think that he that he cracked from the pressure? In other words, because he was this charismatic figure, handsome guy up there talking the Lord, probably women were coming on to him a lot. I imagine, absolutely, and. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, as I remember, what the biggest problem was. My mom was much younger than my dad. And uh, I, I'll go even deeper on it. My dad's best friend, his hunting buddy, had a daughter. And my dad's best friend said, my daughter needs a summer job, you know, this year, um, so my dad gave his daughter a summer job. That was my mom. And they fell ah. in love. Oh. So the my dad fell in love with the, the Monica Lewinsky of the church. Uh, you know? hey. And it must have caused a rift between your dad's hunting buddy because uh, oh, yeah. your dad ran off with the daughter. Uh, yeah. it must have been. So you probably didn't even know that side of the family. I bet they, they wanted nothing to do with your mother and your father. Ab ab absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, because, I mean, it was this young girl and and now everybody, all his other daughters from a previous marriage didn't like her. And the <laughs> old sisters in the church, now they didn't like her, you know, and she was, you know, Deacon Martin's daughter who, who took the summer job. Now she getting ready to marry the Reverend. And uh, it was it was, you know, and I also my woman is much younger than me. I, I think that's genetic. 
<laughs> well, you know, that might be with every guy. But I was going to you know say what, every Arsenio, man. <laughs> yeah, but you know what, Arsenio? It's a it's a weird thing too because in a way, I don't know how deep you got into this with your, with your therapist, but there must be a lot of rage because in, probably in your young eyes, you were saying, "Gee, my father took this young girl, uh, took her away from her family. You know, they were strange, and then my father ruined her life." In the sense that he not only alienated her from the people that she knew, but now he's running off and doing the same thing again with another, you know, younger version. And and so your mother must have been wrecked because she did give up a lot to marry him. You know? Yeah. My my mother, they, they were so different. Like, like my dad was old school Baptist preacher. You couldn't wear pants. Well, my mother was like, look, I'm going to wear my slacks, you know, so, you know, or or my, you know, my dad dancing. You couldn't dance in my house, Howard, mm. uh, not standing up. You know, you wow. couldn't dance in my house. And uh, so th- they were that that younger, older relationship didn't didn't work. It, did and, you and see your imagine- father? Did you but, but did you see your father as a hypocrite in the sense that, oh, we can't dance in the house, but you can fuck your friend's uh, y- y- young daughter. Uh, that's OK. Like you must have seen <laughs> such hypocrisy in the church. Are you religious now or are you just completely turned off to it? Well, I think I'm religious, but I'm turned off to the church. And that's a much longer story. Right. I, I call myself spiritual. I believe in God, but I, I have problems with the institution, with church sometimes, you know? Right. Yeah. Because you saw it all up close and you saw the, you know, you know, sort of the preacher. You know, I mean, do you watch these guys on TV now, especially on the religious right? You know, they're full of shit. They're just full of shit and they're raising money in the name of God. It it is it is especially if you've grown up in a family with a preacher you see it up close, you know. Yeah, and and you know I I know older ladies like who give their last you know very important element of their income to the to pastors. Yes, and uh, it it makes me sad sometimes because there are guys who we know these televangelists that don't really deserve older ladies social security check you know absolutely absolutely we should be helping them you know right. in some way and they and they want to go to heaven so they do these you know what are tithings or you know and and, and it's just it's all based on superstition where they, they're like geez i want to i want to meet jesus so i better give this this guy on tv you know a bunch of money it, it, it really is crazy so how far what, did your father get to see your success and see did you get to say hey you know, you told me I can't go to Hollywood when we were watching Chaka Khan. What did you get to say to him? Look at me now. Uh, like at you what know, point did he, yeah, did he, he see? He passed you? away right after I graduated from Kent State and he had gotten to see me on TV as a magician once hmm. because, um, when I was little, they flew me to New York to do a show called Soul. And I think they just did a documentary on that show. This gentleman who, uh, who had a show in New York and they flew me there to do magic. And my dad got to announce at the end of church one Sunday, uh, watch my son tonight. He'll be doing magic on mm-hmm. television, you know, and that was kind of <laughs> cool. And, uh, my mother, she's in the choir and she's real happy. And, you know, well, that was probably the closest you got to. And I love you, you know, like yeah. go watch my son on TV. She's thinks it's so fucked up between fathers and sons. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I, how did you, uh, how do you keep, you have a son and he's older now, yeah. but do, do you, how did you keep from fucking up with your son when you don't have any role model as a father, you know, or, or maybe a bad role model as a father? How do you, how do you straighten that out? Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you always, it, it's like athletes. You always want to try to be better than the previous generation. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought my dad was a good father. I try not to confuse being a good father with him and my mom didn't get along. Mm-hmm. You know, he loved me. And I think what I try to do is I try to, there are things that I missed as a kid. I try to be better at that. I try not to forget to tell my son I love him. Right. I try not to forget to hug him, you know, because I would love to hug my dad one more time, you know? Right. Right. Or, or hug him more often than I did. Um, spend more time with him than I did. So, so I try to make up 
for the things that that maybe were voids in my youth. Was that your main issue in therapy? Your relationship with your father? Uh, probably that and commitment. You know, for right. a long time, I, I wanted to keep having people tell me I was all right. Tell me that I like you, <laughs> you know, right. and at a certain point in life, you got to settle down and find the right person to say that to you. And you got to be satisfied with that day in and day out. Yeah, it's not so much, you know, guys will go, you know, especially a guy in your position. Hey, you could have a lot of different women, blah, 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 blah. But until you get to the point, I guess, where you say, you know, I don't need constantly somebody telling me how great I am. Um, yeah. And and you start to value that relationship. How long have you been in a relationship now? Because I didn't know you were uh, in one or what. I didn't know what your situation was, but I knew you were kind oh, of yeah. famously single, you know, never gotten married. No, no, man. We've been together since my son was two, uh, my son has a wonderful mom and we've done great co-parenting and my girl who I'm with now and have been for 18 years, she was a great help, uh, in giving me stability during that period. So life is perfect for me, man, but we've been together. I mean, you know, we, we, we went through a rough patch as everybody does, right. but, uh, we've been together. I'm, I'm absolutely not single. You know, and, right. and, and loving it, by the way, during the pandemic, that's when you really found out, find out whether you have a good relationship or not. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially as you get older, you start to appreciate the person who uh, gives you love. You know, you really do. And you, and you start to say, you know, speaking of getting older, I have to compliment you on the um, one of your specials. I think it was the Netflix special that you did a mm -hmm. couple of years ago. And you're talking about getting older and you're talking about peeing. You do this great routine because I'm going through that so horribly. Uh, you know, and you talk about how you, you, you set a line. I, I go to pee and then I'm washing up at the sink and I have to pee again. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, it's such a great routine about, you know, an enlarged prostate that is just so right on the money. You know, it really does resonate. Um, it, it's great stuff. Are you are you doing a lot of stand up now? Is that primarily where you want to be uh, now in, in in terms of your career? Right before the pandemic, before I went to Atlanta to do Coming to America. By the way, that's what that thing is behind me. That That's Atlanta. Yeah. That's Zamunda. But more specifically, that's Rick Ross's yard. Right. <laughs> that's great. Wow. Hey, Howard, when you, yeah. when you see Eddie and his family in the movie At the Table of the Palace, that's right. Rick Ross's dining room. He let wow. us use his house in Atlanta. And it made me want to rap instead of do stand up. Because <laughs> so this is this is Africa we're looking. Yeah, at? yeah. And, wow. and, and by, by the way, Robin, what better place to be Africa than Atlanta? You know, <laughs> that's the perfect by the way, place. By the way, let's let's talk about coming to America and that whole thing. But you know, it really is about this great love affair you have with Eddie Murphy. I mean, you guys are really close. It really is. I mean, you love Eddie. I mean, you really do, right? I mean, you guys. In other words, it's not just, hey, I saw Eddie because we did Coming to America. You guys are, you continue to be close. Uh, it, it, do I have that relationship right? Absolutely. I, I get him and we came up and I, magic is kind of the same way. We came up at a time where we learned this whole thing together. We went through all this together. And, and I uh, imagine back when you were going through it together. In other words, you were a young uh, stand up. Mm -hmm. In that crowd, Eddie Murphy was also trying to make it as a stand-up at that point before he was really on Saturday Night Live. So you mm -hmm. guys met all the way back then. How did that famous meeting happen? Uh, were you just at a comedy club and you run into each other? And, you're, and, and back then, I don't know how many black comics there were, but I bet you there weren't a lot on the, on the circuit, so to speak. Yeah, like if you went to the comedy store, there were three, they call them paid regulars. There were three black paid regulars Paul Mooney was one of them. Right. Uh, Eddie would come here from New York, and I think he was in town to do The Tonight Show. Right. Uh, probably around the time he was also shooting 48 Hours. I think I got that timeline right. And Keenan Wayans called me and said, why don't you meet us at the Improv? Because Keenan's a New York comic, and they were friends with Eddie. And he said, Damon, my brother's coming. You haven't met Damon. You got to come meet Damon. And uh, we all met in front of the improv and Eddie's mother, <laughs> Eddie's mother is getting a lot of 
a lot of energy in this interview. Uh, Eddie's mother had told Eddie, I saw a young man on solid gold and he did stand up. And I think you all look like you could be brothers. I want you to look for Arsenio when you get out there. So Keenan heard that story and introduced us. And the first thing Eddie ever said to me in, in Murphy fashion, he looked at me and he says, nigga, you don't look like me. <laughs> That's the first thing he ever said to me. And then we went into improv. And uh, yeah. oh, That's on. so funny. Did, 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 so, so when you met Eddie, he was already Saturday Night Live and he had already, uh, he, he, was, he was a big star. Was that intimidating to you? Do you, like, were you uh, like, like, like shy around fame? Or, or were you able to relax? I would imagine you're relaxed because uh, Eddie really doesn't want a sycophant there. He wants he wants a guy who can be himself in front of him. I mean, there is a certain weird protocol, I guess, that, that occurs, right? I mean, there's a way to hang. Yeah. And I, I think meeting Eddie early on is is unique and different because when you meet Eddie at that time, you're closer. I mean, now he's the comedy goat. But right. it's like meeting LeBron when he's in Akron. <laughs> you know, right, and, right, right. and remaining yeah. his friend. You know, also yeah. Richard Pryor was my hero, and and I'm proud to say my friend. So I understood Eddie because I knew Richard. I, Richard and I were friends until his last day on this earth. And Howard, he taught me the most about understanding this town because at the end of his life, there weren't a lot of people hanging around kissing Richard's ass. And I learned a lot about this town. You got Beth. You got Robin, you got your friends know who they are because this town won't be there in the end. You're right. Richard Pryor at the end was sick. He couldn't perform really. He had, he had lost his ability to talk. Uh, I imagine everyone abandoned him at that point. So what would you do? Would you go and visit him and say, Richard, how you doing? And, and, and check in on him. That's a really oh, yeah, loving I, thing I would, to do. Yeah. Yeah. I would go, I would jump over the fence because Sometimes if the nurse was shopping or something, I'd jump over the fence and just go to the back window 